Welcome to NIL Undressed. I'm Ryan Schaffner, and today we head back to Palo Alto to squash some of the MIL misunderstandings, right? Rhea Saran is a rising junior at Stanford University, where she's studying human biology and international relations. So that's an interesting combo. Throughout high school, she played, I mean, she was athlete, right? She played six sports, earning uh, her third degree black belt in Taekwondo. And side note, my son is is testing for his first degree black belt in a week, a little over a week. And so I know what goes into uh, just getting that level, but the level, oh man, it's crazy. Um, she served as a captain on her school's varsity dive team. She's competing um, for her school's varsity track team, performing competitive Bollywood dance and playing basketball and volleyball. She started playing squash in a gap year before attending Stanford and under just a crazy unexpected set of circumstances, had the opportunity to walk on the Stanford varsity squash team. Outside of sports, she's uh, a strong supporter of youth development and women's empowerment through earning her Girl Scout Gold Award uh, and coaching and um, coaching diving and Taekwondo. She really, she, I mean, hey, she, she didn't expect to be a college athlete, so she didn't really expect to find herself in the NIL space. But after acting as an agent for her squash coach, helping her set two Guinness World Records, and raising awareness for her nonprofit, and then working to design an NIL curriculum for Stanford University, she has come to see the immense value that leveraging NIL for all students can bring. Rhea, welcome to NIL Undressed. Thanks for the great intro. Hey, you've done a lot. That's crazy. I mean, it's hard to, like, when do you sleep? I sleep. I think um, being busy helps me with time management, actually. I think I get more done when I'm busy because I'm careful about how I plan my time. Absolutely. Well, and you've got to have your time planned really well to carry a full course load, student athlete and coaching and NIL curriculum. I mean, holy cow. All right. So I got to hit you with some rapid fire. It's kind of a tradition that we do rapid fire questions. You move from Virginia to Palo Alto, right? All the way across the country. Um, what was the biggest culture shock from East Coast going to West Coast? Okay, so two things. One, I think on the East Coast, most of the places I go to are no more than like 15 minutes away. And in California, everything's so much more spread out. So if I ever leave campus, it'll be closer to like 45 minutes to an hour drive. Um, so I think just getting used to the distances of everything was one. And then the other was the weather. I mean, everybody always says that like the California weather is super sunny and it is some of the time. I think the funny part is here we have seasons in like obviously three months, three months, three months through the year. And there you have every season in one day. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. Yeah, I've been to San for the San Francisco area. So it that definitely makes sense. Yeah. Um. All right. So there's no really like going 15 minutes. I'm going to run to the store quick. I mean, it's it. you have to plan. I think if you're going to run to the, the store. store, that can be like 15 minutes. But anywhere you go, even if like you're going into San Francisco, or you're going to the beach. It is an outing then. Oof, all right. So. All right. The What was the biggest adjustment then going from high school to college? I think 
um, in college, just having so much more flexibility on how you structure your time, uh, because you're not spending those seven hours a day in school, then every day can be a bit of a different schedule. And I think just getting used to that. Um, I had a lot of practice with time management, with all practices and homework in school when I was here in high school. Um, but just getting used to making my schedule the way I wanted it to be. I love last quarter not having Friday classes. So oh, yes. you know, with three-day weekend every week. So your favorite campus or the near campus restaurant, and then what's your go-to menu item? Okay, so I'm a huge dessert fan, a really big sweet tooth. So I would say Somi Somi, and it's these um, taiyaki. It's basically like waffles with ice cream. And I would okay. say my favorite is probably the one that's stuffed with Nutella and strawberry ice cream. Okay, well, man, now I'm getting hungry. So, <laughs> all right. So I know you probably get this question all the time. And when I first connected, I was like, squash? First of all, I had to look it up, right? And then it kind of connected. And, but then I was like, a college sport? Wow. All right. There's, there, you know, I was kind of like that with beach volleyball, right? And I was like, I didn't know beach volleyball was a college sport. Um, so I'm sure you had a similar experience. So tell me, how did this all happen? Tell me, you know, you, you went from uh, just going to Stanford as a student to then all of a sudden you're a student athlete. And in a sport that you just really started playing a year before arriving on campus. So I've got to hear the story. Yeah. So I graduated high school in 2020. And then obviously the pandemic started around that time. So I decided to take a gap year. And my younger brother had been playing a lot of squash. And he said to me, hey, since you're not playing for any of your school teams this year and you have some more free time, why don't you pick up squash? So I tried it and really loved playing. And so I played on and off throughout that year. When I got to Stanford, I was planning on maybe joining the club team and went and introduced myself to the coaches. Uh, but it turned out that during COVID, um, like many schools, Stanford had to cut a lot of sports teams and squash was one of them. So by the time I got there, they had missed two seasons of recruits and the oh, varsity okay. team needed a lot more people to play. So the coach asked if I'd be willing to walk onto the varsity team. And I was excited, shocked, but excited. Um, I think it's not really something I ever expected. And I knew that even walking onto the team that way, like I was walking on at a level that you wouldn't typically expect for varsity. I knew that me playing was really to help the team rebuild. And it meant that if I played, the rest of my teammates matches could count. It wasn't because I knew I was going to go in and win everything. Had a lot of people ask that like, oh, like you just transferred all your skills from all your other sports to this suddenly. I'm like, Yes, the athleticism part helps, but it doesn't transfer that quickly. Um, and so for the last two years, I've played for the squash team, and it's been great getting to know the team and the coaches, um, getting to be an athlete at Stanford. Um, but it was really just to help the program grow again. And last year, we had a great season of recruits, and this year we have another great season of recruits coming in. So I probably won't be playing next year, but I'm excited to see what's coming next for the team. And I think there's a real shot at a national championship in the next few years. Well, they better get you a ring if that happens, because, you know, they may not have that program. I mean, that's the cool part about, I mean, talk about the ultimate team player, right? Knowing your role and knowing like how you're going to fit into this 
and, and, you know, not expecting to, you know, be the best player on the team, but knowing that, Hey, you're going to allow your teammates to, like you said, have their records count and their matches count so that they can then, uh, you know, keep pursuing their, uh, their athletic goals. And so it, I've got to get this right. So it squash is like racquetball, correct? Yeah, it is like racquetball. It's in a court with four walls. You're playing with two people in the court. Um, and for college matches, you have on uh, your top nine people play against the other team's top nine people. Okay. All right. Very cool. That's, I mean, I love the story. I mean, and in, in even getting to be part of Stanford athletics, right? I mean, that's something that you can now uh, throw on the resume and like, it's just, it's super cool, especially at, especially at Stanford. So yeah, um, it's been incredible. So what was your parents' reaction when you were like, oh, hey, by the way, uh, I'm now a student athlete? Uh, So they were excited. I think uh, my parents have always been really supportive of me pursuing any of my sports. It was always uh, school comes first, but if you're doing well in school, then you're welcome to do whatever you love doing. And so I, because my main sport was Taekwondo, we didn't really expect that I would be competing in college at the varsity level. I probably would have played club something. Um, But when I found out I was going to be a varsity athlete, we were all super excited because, I mean, who gets to just wake up one morning and be like, okay, today I'm a D1 varsity athlete at Stanford. And my parents actually both went to Stanford and had a lot of friends who are athletes. So they really do know what it means to be an athlete there and what the caliber of that is. And so it was just a cool experience. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So we were on this, you know, the we're student athlete at Stanford, uh, unexpected. And then we throw name, image and likeness into the mix. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, early reaction, how did you initially see name, image and likeness? And then um, you know, it, obviously it's changed. And so tell me about that evolution and, and how you see it now. Yeah. So when I first came to Stanford, I, I mean, I didn't really know that it was called name, image, and likeness. I knew that athletes had the opportunity to work with companies, to build their platforms, to make themselves known and use their name, image, and likeness, um, to, like make deals and things like that. And at first I was like, okay, like I'm not the top athlete. This isn't really for me, but I think something that changed that. um, So in that gap year, when I started playing squash, my coach, uh, Zahab Khan, she was a professional squash player from Pakistan and we became really close. And she also had hair that was down to the floor So I helped her set two Guinness World Records, one for most hair clips on your head and one for most hair donated by an individual. And throughout that process, we ended up bringing in a bunch of sponsors and donors and getting a lot of media attention for it. And in the end, we're able to raise a lot of awareness for her nonprofit, Educate Athletes Social Welfare Organization, which is helping kids in Pakistan pursue education and sports. Okay. I think doing that in my gap year really made me see that like, oh, this is something that can be used to raise awareness for a cause too. It's not just about the deal. It's not just about making money. Um, And I think that's something that became really interesting to me. And the idea that any athlete, especially because 
people are interested in what you have to say as a student athlete at all. And so just by that, you're able to build a platform. And there's so much you can do once you build that platform that doesn't necessarily have to be tied to your performance as an athlete. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're building relationships, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. that's essentially what you're doing. All right, I've got a laundry list of questions to ask, but I've got to know that's a super cool uh, nonprofit. How much did you raise? And then how far does that go to actually helping the cause uh, in in Pakistan? So for that event, we raised about $6,000 and there was just a lot that went into it with the event. And we partnered with a charity to donate the hair. Um, The nonprofit is still growing right now. It's in the process of being registered in Pakistan and here. And so we're going to then be able to work on uh, doing more fundraising for that. Um, But they've been able to pay school tuition for a lot of kids there and for them to be able to pursue their sports. They've been able to hold throughout COVID uh, food and clothing drives and are now working on holding some more events in schools to encourage parents to let their kids pursue sports. Yeah. You know, and this is the coolest part. I know this one wasn't specifically for name, image, and likeness, mm-hmm. um, but there's so many athletes and this gets overshadowed with the million dollar deals and, you know, the, the influencers and all that type of stuff that there's so many athletes that are, uh, like one of the, uh, football players, Terrian Williams, who, who we had on and we've gotten to know, I mean, he's feeding people back home Thanksgiving dinner. uh, And, and it's just, you know, the causes that they are, uh, helping and the impact and where that goes, right. They're going to help someone that then helps someone that then helps someone, Mm -hmm. And they may never see the fruits of that, but to be a part of that and knowing that name, image, and likeness is a catalyst for, for, you know, feeding somebody, right. Getting somebody the nutrition they need or letting them, uh, in y'all's case, the, you know, play a sport and, you know, have an opportunity now that they never would have had because of it. That's one of the coolest parts of, I think, name, image, and likeness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's really cool. And I think it's not the first opportunity that people always think of. But I kind of see it as like, if you're an athlete building a platform that was based on your sport, how is it different than anybody else who's built a platform for what they're doing and then serving some cause for it? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I was I was talking to um, the other day, I was back coming from a football program, right? And they're all in camp and everything. And and, you know, I said, you know, back when I was growing up, because I'm a little bit older than them, not too much, though. And uh, I said, you're, you know, it's really your reputation digitized. That's what your brand is, right? You're, and when I was growing up, it would, you would be, you know, word of mouth is how your reputation would uh, spread. But now it's anybody that has a cell phone, that has a social media app, that has a similar interest or some sort of commonality with you or uh, an aspiration, they share an aspiration that you have now become part of that community. And as you grow and as you develop, they're going to grow and develop as well. And so it's a chance to, you know, be on that journey with this community of people that you can then influence and, and, um, you know, have some sort of relationship with and and for whatever cause for a, for a you know charitable cause or you know helps sell products or you know get a message out that sort of stuff. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I think just the fact that you have access to so many different people and you're able to contact them and like even as simple as 
cold email, cold DMs, like you, who knows, like you might get a response from somebody that's willing to work with you on something. Yeah, absolutely. And there's been a ton of collaboration as well. So, all right. So they then said, Hey, you know, Rhea did this, they got the Guinness book of world records and Stanford knocks on, on your door and they're like, Hey, can you help us, you know, make sense of all of this? So tell me, tell me some, something about that. Cause that, I mean, that's really cool too, to have a part of how all the athletes at Stanford now are, are pursuing their NIL opportunities. Yeah. So, um, the, we had an NIL director, Katie Bridge, who was there for the last two years since NIL was made legal. And she decided to run an independent study this quarter um, with seven athletes where we were working to design the curriculum for Stanford. I think we noticed that there just aren't a lot of rules in the space and every institution is trying to come up with how they should be part of it, what they should do next, how much to regulate, how much to let students do on their own. And so we really wanted to see what is it that Stanford students want? What is it that they may want to do but don't have the resources to do yet? What is it that new students coming in from high school might be looking for when they're picking a school based on NIL? And what are the institution's goals with it? What are their concerns with it um, for how we should make NIL work? And I think we found that a lot of the things that students were looking for were like, we don't know where to start, or we don't know what opportunities are, are all out there for us, or who to connect to, or we know that there's a huge alumni network, but how do we connect to those people? And there are systems in process to do that, but I think it was just making people aware of all of those resources. And then at the same time, from the Stanford side of it, I think a big concern with NIL right now has been equity and how it plays out with Title IX, with the differences between male and female sports, um, and then just how it plays out with equity between athletes and the rest of the student body. I think a big one with that is collectives. We yeah. Collectives may not have been the original intention of NIL, but they're a thing now. Yep. But because of such a strong focus on football and men's basketball, like what does that mean for the women's sports? Um, and I, so I think the school has been just trying to balance between do we support NIL and go all in on it, knowing that these equity concerns are there, or do we hold back and try to come up with something that makes it equitable at the same time? Yeah. You know, that's and that's interesting because you bring up the Title IX, right? And that's a question that and that's a really dicey one to figure out, right? Because at the end of the day, collectives weren't part of the vision of NIL. Uh, we all know that, right? But they developed and uh, from, you know, a lot of people I talked to, it just kind of legalized what was happening anyway. Uh, but it's all done through private businesses that are, you know, giving these kids money, but they're having to do some sort of, um, you know, NIL activity in order to get it right. It could be an appearance or autograph, whatever it may be. Um, and so how can you, through Title IX, tell a business, you know, where they can put their money and who they can give it to, right? I mean, that's a, that, that would be a stretch. Um, so that's a that, it, that'll be an interesting one to see how that gets figured out in the future. And I was talking to uh, a professor, sport management professor at Florida State, 
And we were just having a you know good conversation. He was on the podcast. And at the end of it, I was like, you know, I this is going to be interesting to see the long-term impact of NIL on the athletes that actually go in and develop their brands, right? Because the the hype and all that is the collectives, the football, the basketball players, and they're getting, you know, upfront money now and, you know, definitely not happening with squash, with women's softball, swimming, diving, track and field and all that, right? So there's definitely, uh, you know, um, a difference there. But those athletes, you know, the that are, you know, with squash and, and softball and all those that are actually building their brand and making the connections with uh, the, you know, their, their, you know, followers and, and their peers that, you know, the, my theory is they will be able to monetize longer as they age and as their followers age and experience new aspects of life, are they actually in a better position to, you know, over the next, you know, 50, 60 years, take advantage of this because what they're able to establish now versus that football player or basketball player that, yeah, they may have 50,000 followers, but there's not really an engagement between those followers. And the second that they're not on the field performing, they're essentially irrelevant, right? right. Um, nobody's think- nobody's following them. And so, um, so I, we're, we're going to try you, we might get, ask y'all to be a part of this. Cause I think we're going to try and build that, that study out. And, you know, it's that, you know, would you rather get that, uh, you know, the money now, right? Would, if I give you a million dollars now, or do you want the penny that, that, uh, doubles every day for 30 days? And it's, you know, most would go with that. Yeah. I take the million dollars, but the penny that doubles at the 30th day, you have got like $5 million. Right. And so it's, uh, it'll just be interesting to see how that um, how that transpires. We want to thank our sponsor, Success Beyond Game Day. For many athletes, the last safe place was the locker room. They could be themselves and not be judged. Success Beyond Game Day creates a locker room community for athlete development. Partnering with individual athletes, high schools, athletic departments, college and pro teams on building their brands, understanding name, image, and likeness, how to get deals, and personal finance, all while leveraging a proprietary assessment that identifies core skills that athletes can leverage to create a competitive advantage, all while creating an environment where athletes can connect to push each other to greatness. Check it out at www.successbeyondgameday.com. Well, I mean, I think there's two things about that. One is that like, Yes, logically, it makes sense to take the fun, the penny that doubles every day. But how do you explain that to a 16 or 17-year-old exactly. that is being offered a million dollars all at once? And I think part of the like not having much rule, much in terms of rules, regulations around NIL right now is just that you have people being offered money at age 16 that they never imagined was going to just come into their lap and but not a lot of resource on what to do with it or how to handle it compared to that kid may not yet realize that they finish college have their degree and work after that like that's going to be worth so much more in the long run yeah um and then i think the other thing that was interesting is 
especially for women's sports, like what you're saying about raising a following as for your performance as an athlete, I think with women's sports, you do have that, but you also have this huge growth around the story. And unfortunately, half of the story for most female athletes is that you are a female athlete and you made it to that level. Yeah. But I think being able to do that, if you were able to make it to that level, easier to do whatever it is later on. I was reading an article last week that was pointing out how if you look even at like the C-suite level of most companies or like boardrooms and you look at all the women in those rooms, the majority of them played some sort of sport growing up. Um, And I think it just teaches you a lot about teamwork, how to build confidence, how to work with the people around you, how to build connections, how to be competitive. Um, I think a lot of times we steer away from, try to steer away from competition, um, which I think, yes, there is a lot of truth to being in a hyper-competitive environment, that being problematic too. But I think sometimes like you have to learn how to do it. It's part of life. And if you're building those skills through sports and you're building this skill NIL through your sport, that's something that you're going to able be able to have for the rest of your life, no matter what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're essentially, you're saying it's athlete development is what it is. You're just, you're able to put it into practice now, whereas before you weren't able to put it into practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love the other thing you said, you know, with, with the females in the, in the um, business world, having the athletic experience. And I think across male or female, um, it's important to understand that, you know, you're, you're a high performer, you make it to college sports in general, you're a high performer, but D one power five, like you have characteristics that make you a high performer. You may be using them on the athletic field now, but there's no reason why those same skills don't apply to anything else you do. You're just changing, uh, you know, the, uh, where you're using them, right. You're into the business world or starting your business or wherever it may be. Right. All right. What's your prediction if we have the magic eight ball, right? What's your, what's your prediction for the next two years of NIL? That's really hard to say. I think you will start to see more guidelines on what is allowed and what isn't allowed but I'm not sure if that's going to be coming from the NCAA, whether that's going to be coming from states, whether that's going to be coming from Congress. Um, We saw, I mean, even in the last few weeks with California trying to bring in the College Athlete Protection Act, um, you can tell that there are governing bodies that are starting to try to make rules around this, but there's so many little details and all these intricacies in it that if you try to make rules without understanding those, you're really missing out on a lot of the side effects, um, which end up being more harmful than beneficial to sports. And so I think there probably will start to be more rules, but until we can actually understand the full landscape of this, and I don't know that there are a lot of people that understand it at this point because it's so new, it's going to be hard to make those rules in a way that's actually benefiting the people that they're supposed to. Yeah, I agree. And so you were actually recently published in thehill.com regarding that California Act. So tell, you know, quickly tell us what it's supposed to do and then some of the pitfalls that you see um, within it. 
Yeah, so the act is intended to bring more direct revenue to revenue generating athletes. Um, it is in the form of a degree completion fund. So the idea being that this money is given to you to help with completing your degree um, and that you are profiting because the school is profiting from you being in the media, which is great for those athletes that are receiving the money directly. I think the pitfalls with it is there are only a few sports that are really generating that much revenue and mostly male sports. And in the bill, they've acknowledged that. And so they've said that to make up for the fact that we are giving this money directly to men's sports, we will also compensate the women's teams, which again, sounds great, but where does that money come from? And when that media revenue before was going to the overall athletics programs and being divided amongst all the sports and building the programs all together, that's great. But if if that money is redirected, then sports are just losing money in general. The schools don't have enough money to fund all the programs that they currently have. Um, I think the other thing with that, the big question I had was, if this is a degree completion fund, why do we need more money to complete the degree when we're already, not everybody, but like some people are already on scholarship? And, um, and, And so I thought, okay, so maybe it's that if these people are playing and they leave and choose to turn pro, the completion fund gives them the money to come back and finish their degrees. But Stopping out of school and coming back to finish your degree has been a thing for a long time for many reasons. And people have all sorts of reasons for doing it, whether it's a startup or a musical career or it's that you need to support your family. And so how is it that an athlete turning pro to pursue their career is any different from any of these other cases? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, well said. And I think you hit it. You hit the nail on the head, right? I mean, they're trying to put a Band-Aid on this problem. Uh, well, on this issue, right? It's not a problem. I mean, it's 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 put the bandaid on the issue. Their heart's in the right place, but they're you know looking through the lens of short-sighted glasses, right? They're not mm-hmm. thinking through, like you said. Well, where does the money come from? And and again, if if the money now that's coming to the athletic departments is used to support all teams, mm-hmm. if that's now not coming in, where do you get the money? Do you raise tuition and you know then you have ramifications there? And so it's like, you know, you right. think you solve one problem, but you create five more as a result of it. Right. And like like I said, squash was one of eleven sports at Stanford that was cut during COVID. And even just seeing that, like, what it does to a team when you cut the team and then potentially bring it back, like it's hard to rebuild a program that way. And so if this were put in place and you ended up having to cut teams because of it, and then eventually were able to reinstate them, like, great, you reinstated them, but you've caused a lot of just like working backwards for that team. Um, And so I think that has to be taken into consideration too. I think there are so many schools around like Sanford was lucky that we were able to bring all the sports back, but not everybody was. Right. Yep, exactly. All right. Shifting gears now to high school. What what advice would you give high school athletes as they start to focus on NIL, brand building, positioning themselves for possible deals and opportunities? I would say uh, definitely be open to things that might be unexpected. I think um, there's a lot out here that we're all still learning about. And as a high school student, you have the opportunity to create it as we go. 
Um, and so I think being open to things that are unexpected for looking at a school, you want to make sure that your school is supportive of you pursuing NIL. Now there's going to be a big range of what exactly they're doing to support you, but you want to know that it's something that if you want to pursue your coaches are fine with it. I think there's a lot of opportunity for students to pursue NIL on their own. And then also a lot that the schools can do to support them. So just being aware of both of those things. But again, I think there's no script for it. I think every person's story is going to be different. Every deal that you do is going to be different. The way that I may approach NIL is different than the way that any other athlete would. And so I think just looking for those opportunities where you're unique, where you can be a value add to the company or whatever program you're trying to apply for um, is a great way to find your story. You don't have to try to fit the mold to like, oh, this is what most top athletes are doing. So I'm going to go and do that. I think be different. It's, it's more interesting. It makes a better story. Um, and I think for high school students, just look for opportunities where you can jump into things wherever you can. Um, it's kind of funny in the last few months, my dad has really been telling me to find ways to put yourself in a position to be lucky. Um, and what that means is, look, at the end of the day, there's going to be some things that come down to luck, but you can position yourself to be in those lucky positions. And the more people you meet and the more people you connect with, the higher likelihood you are of putting yourself in those positions. And so I think for high school students, just keep diving into things that you may not have known were possible. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, part of that is knowing what you kind of want to do long term mm -hmm. and which is difficult, you know, high school. I mean, if you had asked me in high school, would I be doing any of this right now? I would be looking at you like you're crazy. But having an idea of where you want to go and then how can you then use NIL to figure out, is that really what you want to do? Or uh, is there some other avenue that you know, you're able to get lucky by putting yourself in that position to uh, to be able to take advantage of? Exactly. I mean, like I said, before coming into Stanford, I didn't know that. NIL was a term. Um, similar thing with not knowing exactly what I wanted to do. Like I'm studying human biology and international relations. I didn't know that coming in. I declared my major at the end of sophomore year. Um, and I think with NIL, just building that platform, figuring out what it is that you care about, um, and then finding different ways where you can support in places that you care about. For me, I really care about youth development, women's empowerment. And so I'm glad that with Zahab's nonprofit, I've found a way to do that. But before that was with coaching and with speaking on behalf of Girl Scouts. And so it's just different opportunities that come out there once you find the causes you care about. I think um, one thing that's interesting is when you're in high school, you may not think a lot about it, like exactly what it is that thing that you care about. But when you have to write your college admissions essays, it forces you to write your own story. And in school, we spend a lot of time on academic writing, maybe even some sort of narrative writing, but it's very rarely about you. And it's often an uncomfortable position to be put in for the first time where you have to write about yourself. Yeah, for sure. um, but as uncomfortable as it is, it does force you to think about the things that you care about, the things that you want to carry into college. And so even if you don't know exactly what that means 
from a major or a career or what you want to do afterward, you do have some idea of what your values are and what things you want to have as your platform as you're building NIL. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So you recently took a trip to Atlanta this summer to to the NIL summit. Uh, what are the two or three things that you learned there that you were like, oh, this is good stuff. I need to, to start working on this or we need to incorporate this into the curriculum that we're that we're building out? So one, I would say meet as many people as possible, learn about their stories, learn about what they're doing in NIL, um, find ways to spotlight their work. And I think how that was incorporated into our ideas for curriculum was if we're able to build some sort of NIL club where all students, athletes and non-athletes can come together and share their experiences with NIL because everybody's story is going to be different, there are things that people have done that you can learn about and may prompt some idea related on like your own uh, background. But it's the more and more stories you hear, the more and more likely you are to be able to come up with those ideas. I would say another one is on building your brand. So just really thinking about like, what are the things that I care about as a person at the end of the day, like, yes, you are a student. Yes, you are an athlete, but you're still a person. And yeah. after all this is over, after you walk out with your diploma, for the most part, I mean, most athletes don't end up turning pro. You are still a person at the end of this. And that uh, platform is going to carry with you. So how do you present yourself as a holistic picture rather than just who you are on the field? Yeah, that's great. You were a person before you were an athlete, and you're yeah. going to be a person after you're an athlete. Correct. And so, yeah. yeah. The 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 underlying theme there is you are a person. Let's figure that out. And right, like, and so even in my case, like, especially because the time I picked up squash, started playing, was so quick. Like, I was a person before. I am a person now. I was an athlete before. I am an athlete now. Whether it was with Stanford squash or not, like those are things that still carry with me. And that's as the, as I build the platform after, like those are experiences that are always going to be part of you, whether you're doing them today or you did them in the past. Yeah, absolutely. Rhea, thank you so much. This was an awesome conversation. Uh, I think we're going to be seeing you, you know, in the future in this space and whatever you do, you're going to be super successful. So thank you for spending some time with us. How can people, if they want to reach out and find you, what's the best way to do that? Um, the best be would be my Instagram, which is at Ria M Saran. So R-I-Y-A-M-S-A-R-A-N. Awesome. Thank you everybody for joining us on NIL Undressed. As always, every like, subscribe, share, and comment is greatly appreciated.